We're in for a treat tonight. We have Ken Du back for week two. So just give him a warm welcome. I'll let him introduce himself here, but just give him a warm welcome. Ken Du. Thank you, Pastor Bernie. Welcome, everyone. We're so glad you're here. How many were here with us last Wednesday evening? Great. We're so glad you came back. Tonight is part two, and it's really fun. We're going to be talking about evolution. Now, as a university student, I believed evolution was true when I was studying biology and anatomy because my biology professor told me it was true. And besides, there was little pictures in the book that had these ape-like creatures evolving and growing and ascending to modern man. How many know what I'm talking about? So, of course, if it's in the textbook in biology, it must be true. And as we talk about worldview, the one thing we talked about last week is ideas have consequences. And if we believe that we came from nothing and that probability undirected natural forces and time is our father, then there's really no purpose for us on the earth. There's no such thing as morality. Ideas do have consequences. Last week we talked about what composes a worldview. A worldview answers four basic questions. Remember, it, it answers my origins. Where did I come from? Number two, it answers meaning. Why am I here? What's my purpose? Number three, morality. How should I live? How should I behave? And number four, my destiny. But they're all predicated on what you say, where you come from, your origins. Now, there's only three explanations for how we got here. Number one, you're the product of an undirected natural force that didn't have you in mind. You're essentially happy mud. We call that evolution. You're lucky mud. You got here. The second one is that a creative mind that is infinitely more powerful than anything in the cosmos thought about us and planned us and designed us and put us on this little blue speck called planet Earth and we're here alive and conscious and sentient. At least most of us are, I hope. And so that's the second explanation. The third explanation is we're really not here, but we think we're here. That's what we call an illusion. Now, I want you to do me a little, a little favor. I want you to touch the person to the right or left of you and say, I'm pretty sure you're here. Okay, great. Now we can eliminate that third option, okay? So there's two options. Either we got here by probability and chance, and there is no God, there is no designer, or there is a grand designer that put us here. And as Christians, we need to understand that the Bible's got it right from the beginning. And I'm going to quote a scripture, and I'm going to ask you to follow along with me. Then we're going to just take what the scientists say, the molecular biologists, the astrophysicists, all the people, and they're going to confirm what we read in scripture. Turn with me. To Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Very familiar scripture. As a new believer, I read this and I thought, ah, my biology teacher had it wrong. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. What do they suppress? The truth. And unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God has made it evident to them. How? For since the creation of this world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, 
and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made. For even those who witnessed that, they make excuses, and it says in verse 21, for even those who knew God did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and what did they do? They exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God as a creator for an image in the form of corruptible man, birds, four-footed creatures, animals, and crawling things. Therefore, God gave them over. So we see here that this idea that we came from the lower organisms has been with us for a long time. In fact, it, it started with the Greek philosophers. Let's put the first slide up if we could. But we're going to talk about why evolution by scientific means, we know scripturally it's wrong, but why it can't stand on its own science. Next slide. We'll all remember a, a young man back in the 1800s named Charles Darwin. He got on board the HMS Beagle and took a, took a, a trip. He was studying to be a clergy and then became the naturalist for the HMS Beagle, and something happened to him on that trip. Let's watch. In 1831, Darwin, then 22 years old, set sail on a five-year survey expedition for the British Empire. He journeyed from England on the HMS Beagle, traveling around the southern tip of South America then north toward a chain of volcanic islands in the Pacific called the Galapagos. On this desolate archipelago, 600 miles off the western coast of Ecuador, Charles Darwin encountered an extraordinary array of birds, reptiles and mammals, the likes of which he had never seen before. For more than a month, Darwin studied plant and animal life, took extensive notes, and collected specimens. Then he left, never to return. Twenty-five years passed as he developed a theory about how the diverse forms of life on Earth had originated. In 1859, Darwin published a book titled On the Origin of Species its impact on science and ultimately all of Western culture was dramatic. Darwin argued that all life was the product of purely undirected natural forces, time, chance, and a process he called natural selection. Okay, <clears throat> next slide if we could please. So if we understand this, the essence of Darwinian thought, by the way, that's, this is the dominant worldview in the West. On universities, from every academic discipline, there's a Darwinian seed or basis that's in most of academia today. And the, the essence of Darwinian thought is the universe is the result of matter, time, and chance, undirected natural forces. You don't need a god. All you need are gravity, the strong nuclear force, electromagnetic force, the weak nuclear force, and then you can get all this complexity. Darwin 
suggested that all organisms, plants and animals, have evolved from common ancestors by random mutation and something called natural selection. In other words, random mutation is something went wrong in the genetic code, the genes of the organism, and this mutation actually was a advantage for the next generation and somehow caused them to adapt better. Unfortunately, uh, mutations don't add information, and they're not an advantage. They are actually a disadvantage, and we'll talk more about that. And the other thing, which is unseen, a thing called natural selection. Next slide. Natural selection simply says this, survival of the fittest. Certain advantageous traits are passed on from one animal to its offspring, causing it to better adapt and cope with the changing environment. That's simply what it means. Number two, random mutation, a rare and sudden alteration in the gene code or mutations that are mistakes that cause defects or deaths in the offspring. So natural, natural selection has never been observed. It is just a theory based on conjecture and speculation. Why? Because we have to explain how we have all this whole plethora and diversity of life, from animals to plants that, that are so amazing and complex. And Darwin suggested they came from one ancestor billions of years ago, hundreds of millions of years ago, and that's where we are today. So essentially, we owe our existence to all these mutations in this thing called natural selection, which you, we have never proved scientifically. Next slide. So we need to define our term. When we talk about evolution, what do we really mean? Most people, when they talk about evolution, they're talking about the common descent from, from small or simple organisms to more complex. But we all know evolution takes place because in one term, the term is called microevolution, where there are small changes within a kind. In other words, we know if we've got medical doctors in the audience, they can tell you that viruses actually change and react against penicillin or antibiotics. That's called genetic drift. But at the end of the day, you still have a virus. It hasn't morphed into something else. It's still a virus. And so why is it, the question is, why is it that there are so many smart people with PhDs after their name believing this? And one PhD told me this. He said, when intelligent academic people with PhDs behind their name utter nonsense, it is still nonsense. And so we've got to look at it and say, is this reality? Is it a statement of truth? So when we look at the different dogs, we realize that there's a whole variety of dog kind or species. And in this variation within a species, there are many different breeds of dogs, but they are all still the canine kind. How many know what I'm talking about? Any dog lovers in here? Yeah. So if you could take a Great Dane and a chihuahua and overcome the size difference and they could, they could produce offspring, you would still have a dog. But they look very different, why? Because the whole range within that species, but they are still within the same kind. Can I tell you something, ladies and gentlemen? We don't have one record in, the, in one intermediate stage or one missing link in the fossil record showing one species changing into another one. We don't have it. So some of these scientists and some of these evolutionists, they have more faith than we do because they are basing their whole worldview on something they cannot prove and they cannot observe in real science. Next slide, please. Here are the basics why evolution can't stand on its own scientific footing. 
It cannot be proven by scientific observation. You can't, you can't see it. Now, for anything to be scientifically verifiable, it's got to have something called falsifiability. In other words, it's got to be observed and it's got to be repeatable. Now, anybody ever heard of the law of gravity? It works every time. We can observe it. We can repeat it. You can do it in any country, and everyone says there's a thing called the law of gravity. The reason we call evolution a theory is because you can't repeat it. It's just conjecture and speculation. So we cannot use scientific observational methods to prove it. Number two, it violates the th laws of thermodynamics. Any engineers in here? Okay, good. I love the engineers. My buddy's here. The second law of thermodynamics is called entropy, that all systems are running, running out of en energy. They are not gaining information or gaining uh, energy. They are running down. Have you ever looked in at the old photos of yourself and you kind of look at yourself and you're, not, you, you know, you're fit and, and everything, then you look 10 years later and, and gravity has taken over. You know what I'm talking about. Things are starting. That's entropy. Have you ever gone into a room and you, you cleaned up and then you come back two weeks later and it's a mess? What is that? That's entropy in your kids. <laughs> you know, things go from order to disorder. Yet evolution says the opposite, but it, it violates the second law of thermodynamics, which says, no, things run down. That mitigates the, gets the very thing that things are ascending, which is what evolution says. We're getting more complex. We're ascending and our culture is evolving. Can I tell you what? Our culture is not really evolving. We have more technology, but people are basically the same they were 2,000 years ago. How many watch the evening news? Okay, the only thing they say good is good evening. And then they begin to tell you all the bad things that are happening and, you know, the, the rape and the murder, the AIDS and the violence. You think, well, what's wrong with the world? If we're so evolved, why socially are we still in the mess? Because we're not really evolving. Next one. Oh, I'm sorry, go back. Go back to the slide, please. You cannot explain how design arrived from random chance. There's something called the cosmological argument. If, you, if you're in philosophy, you'll, you'll hear this. It, mean, it simply means that there's a, we live in a universe of cause and effect. And there's a thing called the cosmological argument that says anything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause for its existence. How many, anybody here got a, a cell phone, an iPhone, a smartphone, a dumb phone, any kind of phone? Yeah, Pastor Bernie's got a phone. Can I tell you what? If you went into the woods hunting during deer season and found Pastor Bernie's cell phone on a fence post, what would you conclude? Would you conclude that over thousands of years of deer hunting season, and all the leaves and the winds and the particles blowing around, that here we have a cell phone sitting on a fence post fully organized. No, you would think someone made that. Why would you think that? Because design demands a designer. The more complex the design, the more intelligent the designer. Look at this beautiful building we're in. Do you think it was once a volcano that erupted and now we have a beautiful auditorium? No, it took very smart people to construct this thing and put it together, architects, engineers, and now we have all this order that they took matter and they manipulated it, and now we have all this order. That's what you see when you see God's universe. You see the created order. Remember this, the more complex the design, the more intelligent the designer. Whoever made this thing called the universe is pretty smart. The next one. I mean, how many here have ever gone to the beach? 
There's a thing, there's a thing called design inference. You know, have you ever been walking on the beach and you found an earring or a watch? I have. What if you're walking on the beach and you find a watch and you pick it up and you look at your wife and say, you know, I think the seagulls flying over the beach all these thousands of years and the, the quartz in the sand emulsifying with the sun and the waves. Be, and I, here's a watch, a beautiful Seiko watch that all these natural forces have put together. You know what I'd say to you? Keep looking. Maybe there's a Rolex around here somewhere. You know, you don't find those things without intelligence. All right. Why is it then smart people can look at the same facts that you and I are looking at and they come with different conclusions. It has to do with presuppositions. Let's look at this presupposition. Similar design equals similar origin. Now if you look at a fish, you think, okay, it looks designed, it can swim underwater, and you look at a submarine, it looks like very much functions and designed like a fish. You think, well, the fish and the submarine must be related. Why? Similar design equals similar origin or ancestor. Now we know that's wrong, don't we? Even though they look the same and they do the same thing, and, and, but plus we insult the fish by saying you're related to a submarine. So you can have the wrong presupposition with the same data, data come up with the wrong conclusion. Let's look at the right presupposition we should have. Next one, next slide please. We know that one's wrong, let's go to the next slide. The correct presupposition is similar design equals similar function. Whoever made the dragonfly, by the way, the dragonfly is a very intricate piece of apparatus. Whoever made the dragonfly and whoever made the helicopter, by the way, the helicopter was designed after the dragonfly. But whoever made both those things wanted them to function in a certain way. So they're not related because the premise is correct, similar design equals similar function. Whoever made them, put them here the way, the way they are. And that's the way you have to look at stuff. And so our starting point or our worldview, our presupposition, filters the information either good or bad. Everybody with me? Okay, good, next slide. We're gonna look at something called uh, intelligent design, and this is a little simple inform information way of, of looking at it and defining it, and this is called the, the mousetrap experience, or example. The idea of irreducible complexity can be illustrated by a familiar non-biological machine, a mousetrap. The trap is composed of five basic pieces, a catch to hold the bait, a strong spring, a thin bent rod called the hammer, a holding bar to secure the hammer in place, and a platform upon which the entire system is mounted. If any one of these parts is missing or defective, the mechanism will not work. All components of this irreducibly complex system must be present simultaneously for the machine to perform its function, catching mice. Okay, irreducible complexity simply says this. If you take any part of the mechanism or the apparatus or the organ in the animal out, it won't work. And we see that with the mousetrap. We see that with everything. Not only are, is there information, but it's specific and complex information. And so 
Darwin himself, when he wrote The Origin of Species, he wrote about the fact that the human eye, he could not understand how it could evolve by natural selection bit by bit with slow, gradual changes. Because if you don't have an optic nerve and you've got a lens and a cornea, you can't see. If you've got an optic nerve, a lens, and a cornea, but you don't have the optic nerve connected to the right part of the brain, you can't see. If you don't have a lens and you've got everything else, you can't see. If you've got everything else and you don't have the retina, you can't see. If, you don't have, if you've got everything but you don't have the rich blood supply showing in these photo cells on the back of the retina, you can't see. You've got to have it all there at the same time. Natural selection cannot explain the complexity of simple things. Not just, not just in our body, you ask some doctors, they'll tell you, just the, the ability for your, your, your blood to clot is a marvel of nanotechnology. Don't take my word for it, talk to a medical doctor. How can all this stuff evolve bit by bit? It's all gotta be there at the same time, simultaneously, or it doesn't work. It's called, it's called complex, specific information. It's like I got a car, but I don't have the right key. The car's got an engine, and the ignition is there, but the key doesn't work. You know why? Because it's not specific to the ignition. But there is the right key. We all know that. Why? You've tried that with different cars. It just doesn't work. That's how all life is. Whoever made the ignition knew the type of key he had to make to fit into the ignition. This information that's so complex from everything in the biosphere to our human body to everything even in the universe that whoever put this together knew that you had to have all these reciprocal information receptors for any of it to work in the first place. That totally goes against natural selection. It has not a leg to stand on, ladies and gentlemen. Next slide. This is one of my favorite. This little fellow is called the bombardier beetle. And the bombardier beetle defies natural selection and evolution. So let's look at that. We have a little uh, video of that, so let's look at that right now. The bombardier beetle is an insect on which an enormous amount of research has been done. The trait that renders this insect so popular is that it owns a highly complex chemical weapon in its body, measuring about two centimeters in length. When threatened by another bug, a boiling hot and irritant solution is formed in its body. Then, the insect squirts this chemical substance at the enemy out of an aperture in its hind section. Driving away its enemies with this defense mechanism, these reactions release a large quantity of heat and the temperature of the solution rises to boiling point. Muscles surrounding the channel leading outward from the beetle's body allow the steam jet to be directed at the source of danger. And the beetle scalds its enemy by squirting the boiling hot solution it produces on it with pressure. This chemical weapon, effective enough to repel the enemy, gives no harm to the insect because the part of the insect's body where this chemical is produced is lined with a heat-resistant material. Okay, look at this. Let's look at the anatomy real quick here of this little marvel of nature. The bombardier beetle has two holding chambers in its abdomen. One is filled with hydrogen peroxide, the other one hydrogen quinine. They are both very volatile. They have to be separated. Then this little clever creature is able to combine them in a mixture chamber. And not only that, he is able to use a little turret, a little shotgun as it were, and aim it at the predator coming his way. Now we got a problem here. If you don't have both those chambers there simultaneously, guess what? 
you're going to explode the bug's abdomen. Can I tell you something? Exploding bugs don't pass on their genetic code to, to their progeny. They don't evolve. And if you have the quinine, you don't have the hydrogen peroxide. If you don't have the asbestos-lined firing tube, the bug, bird, the, bu the bug will burn up its own abdomen. Can I tell you again, exploding bug parts don't evolve. So we've got a real problem here. In, in biology, we call it symbiosis, or we call it mutualism. In other words, you've got to have it all there together. We lived in Australia, and there's a little creature there called the koala bear. Now, the koala bear is unique because... He only lives in something called a eucalyptus forest. And there's only one type of eucalyptus tree the koala bear can consume. Now, eucalyptus leaves are very toxic. Other animals can't eat them. But the koala bear overcame that. He has a little bacterium in his gut that actually breaks down the toxins from the eucalyptus tree so he can ingest it and eat it and survive on eucalyptus trees. It doesn't eat anything else. But this little microbe can't live anywhere else except in the gut of the koala bear. And here's what the koala bear does when it, when it feeds its young. It's a mammal, even though it's a marsupial. It feeds its young on milk. When it starts to wean its baby, the koala bear will take a bit of its own feces and feed it to its baby to transmit the microbe into the gut of its offspring. Why? Because if he didn't, it would starve. And he starts eating the eucalyptus trees. We see that all around the world. We see that not just with our human body, we see it everywhere where this thing called mutualism or symbiosis, you, one can't survive without the other. They have to be here at the same time. That totally goes against the theory of evolution because they have to be here. It's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, the, the answer is the chicken. And so, which came first? Someone put this mechanism, this apparatus here, and it works and functions fully. It's just common sense, ladies and gentlemen. More and more scientists are jettisoning the theory of evolution so that they can say, look, real science studies what is observable, repeatable, and right in front of our very eyes. Next slide. This next little guy is called the, called the uh, uh, not the bombardier beetle. What is he called? Yeah, the bot fly. This is a real nuisance little guy. But here's another example of symbiosis with the bot fly. Let's, let's watch this. She got it. She manipulates the house fly into the right position. And now, one by one, she glues her eggs onto the house fly's abdomen. Within a few seconds, the housefly has been coated by about 30 cream-colored eggs. The botfly releases its hapless messenger. The housefly seems well aware that it's carrying an extra load, but it can't get rid of it. A small fly, unlike the lumbering botfly, is no real irritation and is able to feed largely unhindered. The fly mops up the sweat with its pad-shaped mouthparts. But as it feeds, so the warmth of the cow's body causes the botfly's eggs to hatch. The larvae are armed with tiny hooks 
which helped them to get a grip on a cow's skin and bore into it. A couple of months later, the full-grown larvae emerge and drop to the ground. There they will burrow into the soil, pupate and turn into adults. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? We look at this and we've got some people in here who are molecular biologists and, and study uh, animal science, and they can tell you this is an amazing thing. Now, here's, here's what the botflies did. They realized that they were too big and heavy to land on cows, so they, they got a, a pack together and they met, formed a conference and called these houseflies and said, look, we need a delivery system because we're not doing so well because the cows kill us and swat us off with their big tail. So if you would carry our offspring, our eggs, we would sure appreciate it. That way our species would survive. Now, the reality is that, is that is so ludicrous, but that's the way you have to look at it. Like somehow, in the order of things, the housefly and the botfly mutually serve each other. That is not only irreducibly complex, it's, it is specified information that has to be there from the beginning. You can't get it through evolution. It just doesn't work. Next slide. The information stored in one DNA molecule is such an amazing complexity of information carried within each cell of the human body that a live reading of that code at the rate of three letters per second would take 31 years reading continually day and night. That's one DNA molecule in one cell in your body. Printing those letters out in regular font size on normal bond paper and binding them all together would result in the, the tower uh, the height of the Washington Monument, according to Dr. Fra Dr. Francis Crick. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, it is not just complex inf information, it's specific information. What if you saw on the beach or on the lake, you saw written in the sand, Johnny loves Mary. What would you conclude? That someone knew English and was conveying a message, a very simple message, but it had it had information. That's nothing compared to the information in one DNA molecule that makes you a person rather than a cauliflower, that makes you a male rather than a female, that makes you have blonde hair or dark curly hair. It's all there. Why? Because the designer put it there. And so many people say, well, show me God, show me God. Can I tell you what? If you take out your computer and say, well, I'm using Microsoft Works, Bill Gates is not in there, is he? So show me Bill Gates. No, I can't, but I can tell you he did make it. When you take your iPhone, you, you know that the creator of iPhones, Steve Jobs, is not in your iPhone. When you look at the creation, you're not going to see the actual creator, but you will see his handiwork. You will see his, his design and everything he's put us here. And folks, can I tell you something? We have the truth as Christians we don't have to, to look at ourselves like somehow we're second-class citizens and we can't be conversant with the culture. We can. I love it. I do this all the time. And you would be amazed how many people don't realize and don't understand, even scientists, what they're saying. I was at the University of Hawaii one time, Pastor, and, and I, we, I preached at a church and I was eating my meal and there was this professor in the adjoining table and he was talking to another person who I later found out was a medical doctor. And this person was saying, 
you know, these Christians, they, they believe by blind faith. They don't really have evidence for what they believe. And they're just, they're kind of not very sophisticated. They're kind of second-class citizens. And he's talking real loud. And I'm trying to eat. And I'm thinking, I just preached the whole sermon. I don't want to talk to this guy or interfere with their conversation. But he kept on and on. Finally, I, I, I told the pastor, excuse me for a minute. And I went over and said, excuse me, you were talking so loud, I overheard you. And I said, you said some statements about you can't prove the veracity of God and that Christians are somehow just living by blind faith. I said, I have a question for you. May I sit down? He, she said, he said, yeah. And then the medical doctor said, please sit down, you know, help me here. And I sat down and I said, I have a question for you. I lived in New Zealand at the time. I said, do you believe there's a place called Antarctica? He goes, oh, yes. I said, have you ever been there? He goes, no. I said, how do you know it's really real then? Somebody could be playing a big scam on you. I said, for you to prove to yourself conclusively that Antarctica is real, what would you have to do? He said, well, I suppose I would have to get on a plane and fly from Hawaii and go there. I said, that's exactly right. And finally, a guy in the booth next to me stood up. He says, I'm a Kiwi mite. It really is there, you know, and sat back down. And I said, you're right. I said, so you believe in Antarctica because it is a faith assertion. I said, many of the things you are stating, stating right now, they're faith assertions. You can't prove it. It's not repeatable. It's not observable. You take it by faith. And he got real quiet. And I was able to pray with the doctor. She said, thank God you came. This guy's been trying to convert me to atheism for so long. I'm a believer but I tell you what, folks, we have got the truth. We don't have to be afraid to be conversant with the culture. Amen. We can talk about it because the truth is not just there. The truth will set you free. Our next slide. I love this. NASA hired Dr. Howard Morowitz, a theoretical expert who deals with high numbers. Here's what he said. After studying the complexity of a protein molecule, there's over 60,000 proteins, by the way, molecules, Dr. Morowitz concluded the probability of life occurring by, by the chance from one protein evolving is 1 to 10 with 236 zeros behind it. If you take into account all that right now, there, we would never get a protein in trillions and trillions of years with trillions and trillions of galaxies. Forget getting a human being or a dog or a horse. You can't get one protein molecule. Now, here's an atheist telling us probability says no. You can't get it. And so the reality is that the people of real faith are the people who say this Bible is not real, and I believe in this mechanism called natural selection and evolution. I don't have enough faith to believe that, ladies and gentlemen. And we as Christians, we are standing on the side, not just of science, but of truth. Now, why is it that so many people are afraid to admit that there's a creator? It's called the cosmic authority issue. I don't want a God telling me what to do. In fact, Alex Huxley who was the great-grandson of Thomas Huxley, who was the defender of, of Charles Darwin back in England. Alex Huxley went on a TV show, and they asked him, they said, why is it that 20th century man wants to believe in evolution without any empirical evidence from the fossil record? Here's what he said. He says, we want to believe in evolution because we don't want a God interfering with our sexual mores. 
At least he was honest. If there's a God, I can't do what I want with my body. So let's get God out of the picture, and guess what? I'm free to do whatever I want. And that's the culture we live in, ladies and gentlemen, is that the reason people want to believe that is because they want to be free moral agents or immoral agents in this world. And we as Christians stand upon the truth of God's word, and the reality is we are standing on very solid ground, not just biblically and theologically, but scientifically. Somebody say amen. Next slide. No divine foot in the door. This is Dr. Richard uh, Leonton. He's, he's a, a, microbiolo- a molecular biologist. He said, our willingness to accept science, scientific claims are against the common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of its failures to fulfill many of his extravagant promises of health and life in spite of these tolerances of the scientific community for unsubstantiated, just-so stories because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. What's he saying? I don't want my colleagues to think I believe in the supernatural. So I, am, I have a commitment to a worldview that says there is no God. It's called scientific naturalism. Everything happens by natural forces that are undirected and there is no God. And that's the culture we're living in. And we need to understand that as we go out into the culture, the Bible tells us that we're, we are to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, always being ready to give a defense for the hope that's within us. Can I tell you what, folks? I've got great hope. I do this on universities everywhere, and I can't tell you how many young people come down and say, thank God a Christian told me the truth, and now I've got some, a weapon. I've got some bullets for my gun. I've got an apologetic to go back to my biology teacher and my philosophy teacher. It's not just blind faith. It's reasonable faith. We, live, we serve a reasonable God, and he has is, he is seen through what he has made. And he's put us here. We're the marvel of creation. We can think. We're self-conscious. We feel pain and love and agony. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from just dead rocks. It comes from a creator who, who made us in his own image. We're not just evolved apes. We are created in the very image of God. And there's a dignity in that. And we have got to be able to be conversant and talk about it using the scripture and using God's science, because all science and all truth is God's truth, even scientific truth, to be able to defend the faith. That we would give a, we would give a defense for the hope that's within us with gentleness and reverence. I was talking to a guy one time, and I'm going to close here. He had all these questions. He said, well, Ken, what about this and what about that? And I answered all of his questions and finally said, I got one more question. And I answered it. And he goes, wow, you've answered all my questions. I said, you know, even if I answer all your questions and if I, you have any more and I answer those and give you the right answer, a correct answer, a satisfying answer, would you then become a Christian? He goes, no. I said, well, then your problem is not an information problem, it's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. The reason most people don't want to believe in God is because they were, they've been hurt, they've had pain, or they just want to run and do their own thing. They don't want a moral judge, a God, telling them anything. And I want to encourage you tonight as we close. The God who made heaven and earth, the God who put us here, is the same God who can give us wisdom and truth to be able to address the worldviews of our culture. And I'm going to tell you this, some of you need to start standing up and saying, 
Pastor Ken, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be talking to my friends and my neighbors, and I'm just going to say, well, I believe the Bible, I'm a Christian, and keep it that. No, we actually have the tools to address and be conversant and really tear down the strongholds that the enemy has put up. Amen? I want you to bow your heads with me as we close. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for these wonderful people who've come out on a Wednesday night. But more importantly, Lord, I pray we would use this as a tool to address our world, that we wouldn't be afraid. We wouldn't say, well, I don't know anything, or I don't have a PhD, or I don't have a degree in this, this discipline. Father, you've already given us that. So Lord, I pray today that each and every one of us here would begin to step out of our comfort zone. We'd begin to engage the culture. And Lord, that you would use us to be instruments to bring your truth and to preach the creation and your glorious creation to those who don't know or doubt. So Father, we give you praise and we give you glory. If you're here today or here tonight and you say, Pastor Ken, the Lord has really provoked me tonight that I need to start learning this stuff but also talking to others about it. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. I'd like to pray for you. Yeah, yeah, God bless you. Those who've raised your hand, just please stand up if you would, just for a moment, just stand up. Lord, I pray for all these precious people who are standing. Lord, they would step out of their comfort zone. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, they'd begin to talk to people and be able to bring this apologetic to people and bring them to church, bring them to the saving knowledge, which is in Jesus Christ. And Father, we give you praise. We give you glory. Let us go out and represent you in this lost and broken world. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.